today. We are finishing up our series that we've simply called Revision, where we've been taking a look at some of the stuff that we believe God has, has put on our heart in terms of language and just and steps and some of the things that we want to aim for. And so allow me one more time to remind you that we are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Together, we want to... Holy moly! Lord Jesus, encourage me supernaturally, please. Let's try, that. Let's try that again. Together, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. From the top, we are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Together, we want to be with Jesus, life, Don't worry, I'm not encouraged. I mean, it's on the screen, uh, so I'm just glad that you can read, but, but, but I, I'm, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that some of you actually have this, have this kind of in your heart and in your mind. Um, I want you to, to notice that we've highlighted two words. This, this is what we're ending off with today. The first, the first week, we took a look at, at the goals we want to order our lives around, the BB Come Do. Then we took a look at how um, ultimately it is all about it being life-giving. If it's Jesus, it's life-giving. If it's not life-giving, it's not Jesus. If it is life-giving, it's Jesus. We can't say that we are reaching people with Jesus if we're not reaching people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Last week, we took a look at, who was that? God bless you, Leanne. Last week, we, we, we emphasized or we kind of really zoomed in on the word reaching, the fact, the fact that we are actually, we don't just exist for ourselves. We're one of the few organizations on the planet that is the church that, that actually exists to serve and to reach those that are actually not inside that you know, particular institution or, or organization. And then today, we are wanting to focus on the part that actually means we're doing this together. So you'll notice the first word that is uh, highlighted is we. We are here to reach people. Then together, we want to order our lives around being, becoming, and doing. I want to take a look at why it matters and, and, and just how important it is that we are actually doing this together. If you're familiar, some of you might be with the first couple of chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we read the, the account of creation, and, and after everything that God creates, He has the statement of, it is good. Create something else, it is good. Something else, it is good. Something else, it is good. Then He creates man as like, this is very good. And then the first time we read that something is not good, is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where, where God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that that is a verse that we, that we only build a theology of marriage around. I don't think that that is limited to marriage. I think it is about companionship. I think it is about relationships. There are many people that will never get married. You are not a second-rate citizen. You don't get to not experience God's plan and purpose for your life. You might just need a theology of singleness. You might just need to understand the, the culture, the values, the, the intentionality that God actually wants us to have in building meaningful, in some cases even covenantal friendships with others. This is not restricted to marriage. But it was not good for a, for a person to be alone. I think that God would still say the same thing today. It is not good for people to be alone. It's been argued that actually sin came into the world. Less so about, I mean, it became, I mean, deception was a part of it, but it first started with isolation. Eve was by herself. 
just to be clear, this is not a statement about Adam and Eve, men, women. No, no, just the person, the person who happened to be Eve. Uh, she was, at first, she was by herself. She was isolated. If you've been around us for a lengthy period of time, or maybe you have come to the New Partners Dinner, you'll hear us make the comment about how it's not the weakest sheep that gets attacked, it's the loneliest sheep that gets attacked. It's the isolated person. We are significantly less protected. We are far more vulnerable, and not in the good sense. There's a good sense of vulnerability, but then there's a really, really dangerous sense of vulnerability when we are ultimately doing life alone. It matters that we do life together. Now, that is messy. If you don't think that, you haven't built enough relationships. It is messy. It can be painful. It can be disappointing. You can experience betrayal. It, it, it can be messy. But again, you've heard, you'll hear us refer to that one proverb where it says that you can have an empty stable uh, which stays clean, but a stable needs oxen to produce a harvest. In other words, we can live clean but empty lives or full and messy lives. So you have, you know, you have stables that, that, that facilitate oxen. There's going, to be, there's going to be stuff. There's going to be, you know, feces and stuff. It's going to be messy. But if you, but if you want what that mess helps achieve, then you're going to be willing to endure the mess. And I think that, that we have to be so careful that we're not, listen, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being idealistic, but we need to be careful that, that our idealism doesn't become an idol. And that we're not so committed to the ideal of the perfect relationship that we actually start to idolize it and then we don't have any meaningful relationship and we live isolated lives. We need one another. We have been created for relationships. We've been created to, to be loved and to love, to be served and to serve to grow together, to have iron sharpening iron, to have tough conversations together. If you read Ephesians chapter 4, the whole chapter, the, the one theme that keeps being emphasized is how maturity, growth, is the sign of healthy relationships. It's the sign of unity. Unity is not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of maturity. We are made to do life with others, not with everyone, but with others at differing levels of relationship, obviously as trust is formed, etc. We'll go into a lot more detail as we start a new series next week. Today I want to kind of almost do a bit of a, a bit of a high level view. I want to just, I just want to turn the soil a little bit, hopefully wet your appetite, and may God convict you if you miss next Sunday <laughs> in the kindest, gentlest way possible. So here are a couple of thoughts. Uh, for the projectionist, my apologies, I'm going to jump ahead and then come back to the passage. Something that I think is perhaps fundamental to our understanding is that Jesus needed people. Think about that for a moment. Jesus needed people. Now, just so you know, that messes with my head. And yes, I, I wrestle over that idea. And I'm trying to think, okay, but what about, what about, and was it just to, you know, was he just around people to, to call them, to empower them, to model for them? It was a lot of that. But I think it was more than that. I don't think Jesus chose to do life with people only so that they could get something from him. I think that there was, a, that there was an element, while Jesus was, was in a limited 
human form. There was, an, there was an element to which Jesus needed people. He needed time with his father. Up until this moment, he had never not been in perfect unity and contact with the father and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a mind-blowing thought. So, so he did need time in solitude. He would go off. He would spend time alone with his father. But he also spent an enormous amount of time with people. Now, in case you're not convinced, I want to take you to a very sobering passage which describes Jesus in the last moments just before he is arrested. He knows he's about to be falsely accused and convicted and then brutally murdered. So, so these are the last few hours. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. He could have gone alone, by the way. There were many times where he went alone. Why did he not go alone this time? Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. That should encourage someone. Jesus got anguished and distressed. It was hectic for Jesus to, to, to wrestle over what he was about to face. He told them, he's being honest, he's being vulnerable with them. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death, so stay here and keep watch with me. In other words, have my back. I can't do this alone. I don't want to do this alone. I'm going to go off and pray, but I'm asking you to, to, to keep watch with me, which I think in part was also, can you pray? Just stay here and pray. I'm, I can't do this alone. Is it possible? Is it possible that that is what Jesus was indicating? He went a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. In other words, if there's any other way. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. You ever been disappointed with friends? People in the church? Like, this is the worst moment of his life. And it's not like they don't know. Like, he's been preparing them for a long time. And he says to them, guys, I'm so stressed out, I feel like I'm going to die. I would be a little bit disappointed. I might want to kick one of them. You know, just to wake them up. Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that... You will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Guys, I'm telling you, I need you. I want you. This is hectic. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so stressed out. I mean, I know I'm going to die, but I feel, like, I feel like even just the stress is killing me. He's already woken them up once. He goes back to them a second time. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things. Notice that Jesus prayed the same thing three times. Notice that Jesus asked the Father if there was another way three times because of, by the way, some theologians argue, and I, and I agree with this. To me, this makes more sen the most sense, that, that, that what was so intimidating for Jesus was not what he was about to go through physically because many people have gone through physical torture and, and pain. It's been argued, and I agree, that it was actually the isolation that he, was going, that he knew he was going to experience. He was going to be separated from the Father completely. Never happened before. He was about to take on the sin of the world. He was about to be 
He was, he was about to be forsaken temporarily so that we could be forgiven. That's why on the cross, he says, my father, my, 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 why have you forsaken me? The unflappable son of God was somewhat crushed by the idea of being completely cut off, of being isolated. But I also want you to notice that, that Matthew can record this story because Jesus had people with him. They, he was vulnerable enough for them to know that he had prayed the same thing three times. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest, but look. The time has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Jesus needed people. So the obvious question is if Jesus needed people, and I'm, and I'm, I'm almost uncomfortable using that word. I'm, I'm aware of how, how much weight the word needed has attached to it. So if it makes you feel better, you can say wanted. But I, I think it might have been deeper than just he wanted people with him. I think, I think Jesus needed fellowship. Jesus needed people to, to also have his back, just like he had theirs, to, for him to not feel like he's carrying this completely alone. But also, I want you to notice that Jesus also needs people or wants people to complete his mission. In other words, Jesus did what only he could do. Only he could die in our place, carry the cost that we all deserved and that every human being throughout history would deserve so that if we accepted that gift, we would be forgiven. Only he could do that. But there are things that only we can do, which again might mess with your head. Now, again, you might not like the word he needs us, but, but let me at least argue that he chooses us. He wants us to do it. We are his family. We are his hands and feet. We are, in a sense, Jesus with a face to other people. We, we are the ones that he has given gifts to in order to serve one another, in order to love one another. We are the people that are meant to give to people in need, to help those that are hurting, to speak words of life. He, we are his mouth, his hands, his feet. Jesus needs, once chooses to leave his mission in the hands of us. People, and you know yourself well enough to know that that's a weird idea. You know other people well enough to know that that's crazy. Yet, somehow, God is confident enough, Jesus is confident enough that he can actually put that responsibility onto us. He needed people, not only in Gethsemane, not, not only as he did life this side of eternity, but he also needs us to band together to serve his purposes. Second thought, which is pretty obvious, is that we need one another. If Jesus needed people, if Jesus wanted people, if Jesus needed friends, if Jesus needed community, I think it stands to reason that we need one another, that we need people. I, I cannot overstate the difference that people have made in my life since I was 18. I mean, even before that, but since I was 18, I had a, what I would call a life-changing encounter with God. Like it was significant. It was, it was like my eyes were opened. Someone opened up the curtains. I, I experienced the grace and peace and love of God in a way that I, I never knew possible. I didn't even know I needed it as much as what I experienced. However, 
and this might, this might really freak some of you out. I am convinced that if it wasn't for people, that experience wouldn't have been enough. And in case you think that sounds a little bit heretical, I would argue that that's biblical. God has designed it that we grow together, that we don't live this life in isolation. I have needed people to, to, to learn from, to, to be challenged by, to sometimes do things that I don't like, and that brings other stuff to the surface for me that I can deal with, that I didn't even know I needed to deal with, but now that I'm in the circumstance, I can deal with it. I've needed people to, to, to encourage, to speak words of life, to, to form. I've needed people to partner with in God's purposes. I, I genuinely am not convinced that I would still be serving God if it wasn't for people. We need people. Even as a leader, I am so grateful that I don't have to discern and figure everything out by myself. I think it is God's plan that, that we lead in teams. That we, so there might be a buck stopper, someone's responsible, but, but that I don't, have to, I don't have to discern completely alone and in isolation. I can do that in a team here in our church, in, in our group, if I think of some of, the, some of the things that we need. Right now, we're wrestling over an incredibly important decision in terms of appointing someone to lead a church. I'm so grateful that I'm not doing that alone. It's in my region, it's my responsibility, but I'm not doing this alone. We, we talk together, we pray together. We, in fact, we, we've even had leaders from the church that have, that have sent us um, what, what I'm comfortable calling a word, uh, like, like a prophetic sense in terms of, like when it happens once, that's one thing. Twice, that's another thing. When a third and different couple or person sends a message saying something along the lines of just this, this like them being reminded of the sense of David being called by Samuel and how, and how his first seven brothers were all the obvious choices. His own father forgot about him. And, and, then, and then them just, just suggesting, saying, guys, look, we, we, we're just wondering. Like, we, our sense is that it's not plan A and plan B, that maybe there's someone else. That, 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 like, we resonated with that, and that's, and that's look, it's caused more, a little bit, bit more delay, because we're like, God, we, we really do, because we did have a plan A and a plan B. We thought we had a plan C. But we're not do, I'm not doing it alone. We need one another. You might be familiar with this African proverb, if you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run together. And this is true. We do run further together. You'll have to look hard to find any example in the New Testament of people serving God's purposes alone. In, in I would argue, if not every case, almost every case, you see people at least working in pairs, if not groups. Jesus sent them off two by two. I know it sounds like a Sunday school song, but he did. He sent them off in pairs. We need one another. I think it also reminds us, and I think it should encourage us, that when we come together, when we allow ourselves to be the body, and you read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and, and Ephesians 4, you realize, hey, I don't have to be all things. I can just be who God's made me to be, and together we form a body. Together we complement. Together we can genuinely achieve 
more. And so we are reminded of this idea. It's a sobering and yet it's an encouraging idea that what we are a part of is bigger than the part we play. And the only way to achieve a bigger mission is to do it together. So the obvious questions are simply this. Are you trying to grow alone or together? Because I would argue that you'll hit a, you'll hit a ceiling. There, is, there, there are things that only you can do. Only you can spend time with God for yourself. Only you can, can reflect on Scripture, can pray, can fast, can, can give. Only you can do that. But, but then there's still more. There, those of you that were in life groups over the last couple of months, I would imagine that most of you found fasting more inspiring and more achievable than ever before, in part because of the teaching. So that's because people with a gift of teaching helped us understand it in a better way. But also, you, all of a sudden, you're doing this with a group of people. Yeah. And, no, and no, no one's trying to, to, to pressure you and say, one size fits all, and we all have to do the same day in the same way. But, but you're encouraged to do this because you know, you know there's a group of 10 other people that are doing this. There is something to be done together. Are you trying to grow alone or together? And the second question is, are you trying to serve God's purposes alone or together? Because again, it's both. It's not one or the other. God wants you to do what only you can do, where you are. But there are also other things that he wants us to do together. Are you trying to serve God's purposes alone or together? Third key idea here, which might be very, very not so exciting for you, is that people will disappoint you. People will disappoint us. Maybe you've left a church because of the disappointment, of, and, and that might have been the right thing to do. You, you may have had to step back from relationships because that disappointment wasn't just like, oh, you discovered they're imperfect. I mean, it might, have been, it might have been far more significant than that. It might have been a betrayal. It might have been something that, that was flat out destructive or hurtful. But then there's, there are also going to be times where just the, the longer you serve with people, the longer you're on a team, the closer you get to people, the more you realize, man, they're, they're also people. They can also get irritable. They can also allow their ego to get in the way sometimes. They can, they can also let me down or run late or, or come less prepared than what they should or just drop a ball. Now, again, if that becomes a habit, then that's a conversation. Then that's a character conversation that we have. Maybe you don't like it that someone had a conversation with you one day. That's not the disappointment I'm talking about. That's the stuff we need. Yeah. Unless it was done in a destructive, manipulative, overbearing way. But we need tough conversations. I am deeply grateful that people have been willing to have tough conversations with me over the years. And I, I don't like having tough conversations with other people. But I do care about, I try to care about their future more than my immediate comfort in terms of having an uncomfortable conversation. I've got to ask myself, do I actually love this person? So, so I, can, I can want them to feel good. I, I can want to encourage them. But do I actually love them? Am I loving this person well right now if there is that kind of, I don't have this relationship with a whole bunch of other people. I would have that responsibility within our church, and I would have that responsibility within our denomination, and even then within, within certain parameters. So this, is, this doesn't give me license to become the global church watchdog. 
where I'm, where I'm dissing all kinds of other people publicly. No, no, I'm, I'm saying if we are in relationship, if, if there's a, a certain amount of responsibility, do I love that person if I'm not willing to have an honest, clear conversation? Again, Ephesians 4 argues that we should speak the truth in love. So we always want to make sure that there's love and that that's the motive. But then we need to ask ourselves whether or not we are loving if we're not having a truthful conversation. If you read that passage that, that I read to us earlier and you go on a bit, this is in Matthew 26, and if you read some of the verses before that, you read about how, so Jesus has his final meal with his disciples before the passage that we read. So still in Matthew 26, the few verses before that portion talks about him having the final meal together and, and telling them that before the night is over, they're all going to desert him. And of course, Peter's like, never, I'll die. He's like, no, you won't. I mean, you will eventually, but not tonight. You're going to desert. You, you're going to deny me. Jesus, Jesus is also looking into the eyes of his closest people. And he says, one of you is going to betray me tonight. Judas is like, who, me? Here's you. If Jesus could be betrayed, who am I to feel that if God loves me and I love God, that I am beyond betrayal? Should that really affect my faith? Should that affect my relationship with God because someone has betrayed me or because people have deserted? It's a pretty big deal that Jesus was not only betrayed by one of the 12 closest people to him that he'd lived with, walked with, ate with, slept next to for, for years, but the rest also deserted him. People will disappoint you. Obviously, we have to determine the difference between, between failure, so like desertion, and betrayal where it's something way deeper, and this is actually that relation. So, you, so there can be forgiveness. There can't be reconciliation if that betrayal is not resolved. And for it to be resolved, that takes two people. That includes the person that's done the betraying. But I want you to notice that even though Jesus was deserted by all these people, he called them again. He invited them again after his resurrection, after his death and resurrection. He goes out and he reminds them and he recommissions them and he speaks life into them again. He doesn't give up on them. People will disappoint us. I want to encourage you, if you, if you haven't heard anything else I've said so far, Maybe this is something that needs to sink in. We need to trust the person behind the person. The person, capital P. What I mean by that is, you might say, there's no, Jason, that's wonderful. Very sweet. Very sweet of you, Jason. You're a nice guy. There's no way I'm going to be getting vulnerable or trusting people again. You don't know what I've been through. And, and I don't know what you've been through. But I would say... And this, is, and this has been an anchor text for me, an anchor principle. For me, it's theology, it's doctrine over most of my adult life that God gives grace to the humble. So if I'm going to, out of, out of humility, make myself vulnerable with someone, if I'm going to confess sin, to be vulnerable means that you are giving someone the ability to hurt you. That's not transparency. Transparency is different. That's just letting you see stuff. Vulnerability is I'm going to let you know something that you can misuse. You can hurt me with this. 
And so, and so over the years, as I've tried to get vulnerable with certain people, not, 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 every, not everybody, I've had to accept, and, and I genuinely believe this to my core, I would rather trust God behind this person and his principle of I'll give grace to the humble, that even if the person misuses it, and people have misused it, hello, we live in a fallen world. But because I'm trusting the capital P person behind the small P person, I can, now, now that's, that is not an encouragement to be foolish and negligent. I'm saying these are obviously relationships where there's been some testing and, and there's reason to trust. But even so, people can still let us down. I would say that without you being guaranteed of a response from people, give anyway. Confess anyway. Serve anyway. Bless anyway. Forgive anyway. When you forgive someone and it's hard, it's got, that, that should have nothing to do with whether or not that person has paid, paid off their debt, they've groveled, they've begged. No, no, it's, it should be because you're trusting the capital P person behind the person. You're trusting, you're trusting that God can handle all of this. Jesus didn't give up on the hose who disappointed him. People will disappoint us. That should never, ever, ever be a reason for us to give up on all people. I think, I think that's exactly what the enemy wants. I think he laughs. Lastly, number four, I want to invite you to commit to radical togetherness. There are so many nuances. There's a lot of wisdom needed. I, I get this, and we're going to hopefully try and answer this in the weeks ahead as we, as we look at some of the different tensions and, and the wisdom that is needed. But I believe it does require a commitment. And, and maybe you have been committed before and people have broken that commitment. I just want to tell you, you're not alone. You may, you may go all in on certain relationships and people might betray you or desert you. That might mean that you, should, that you shouldn't trust that person again unless there is significant long-term fruit in keeping with repentance. But that doesn't mean that you should never dare to trust someone else again. And as I'm, as I'm saying this and as I've been pre preparing this message, I am very aware that there would be a lot of people that have been painfully betrayed, painfully deserted. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a spouse, maybe you even felt it was a child, maybe it was an exceptionally close friend, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was, was a Christian that you went into business with. And it, and, and, and instinctively, it, it has destroyed the idea of ever trusting again. I would encourage you to try anyway. Maybe it's a little bit slower. Maybe, maybe you have to have learned some things from, and, and again, we'll talk about this. But I want to invite you to commit to radical togetherness. Quite a sobering statement that's kind of been paraphrased by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Is that relationships aren't here to make us happy so much as they are here to make us holy. And if you've been involved in meaningful relationships and, and trying to grow, then you know that's true. Relationships don't always make you happy. Sometimes it, sometimes it turns the heat up and stuff comes out of you that you didn't even know was there, like ugly stuff. 
like petulance and, and a temper and language that you didn't even know was in there. And, and, or, or maybe it's passive aggression or, or manipulation or all kinds of stuff. That's, you shouldn't be shocked by that and just try and hide that. That's, that's God allowing stuff to come to the surface that we can deal with. Relationships, yeah, I do think God wants us to experience happiness in relationships. But there are times where it's not just happiness, it's holiness. Again, I think it might be Bonhoeffer who said there are two unavoidable components to any relationships. Two unavoidable components to any relationship. A sinner and a sinner. You will never have a relationship that doesn't include those two components. It'll always be one sinner and another sinner. There are people that deny their sin. That's a whole other story. But, but if, you are, if you have any healthy level of self-awareness, whoa, 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 whoa. We're, all, like, we're, we're, we're dealing with stuff. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus prayed. Like, like it was one of, literally one of the last things he prayed just before he was arrested, just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the last things he prayed in John 17, verse 21. He's praying to his father. He says, I pray that they all that they will all be one. He's, he's referring to, to his followers in that moment and everyone that would believe in and follow him in the future, just as you and I are one. Just as you are in, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus was praying that we would actually grow in loving one another because of the testimony that it would be to the world. Again, if you're not convinced, a few chapters before that, John chapter 13, this is, again, this is still the final line. This is where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, etc. He says, your love, this is John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not how loud you can shout and disagree over stuff, and that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be disagreement. It's not not even just the good works, although that's a part of it, but it's how you love one another. And so I do think that we need to commit to radical togetherness. We need to commit to the one another's. There are a whole bunch of one another's in in, in the Bible. Pray for one another, bless one another, forgive one another, serve one another, love one another, give to one another, encourage one another, confess to one another. Radical togetherness. May God give you wisdom. May he give you discernment. May he help you to, 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 to kind of gauge just, you know, how much to trust. But may he also give you the strength and the courage and the resilience and the bounce back ability to keep trusting him, to keep trusting the capital P person behind the person, to keep fighting for community, for unity. We are here to reach people. Together, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus would do.